Take your Bibles and turn to Second Peter, chapter one. You may say, "Why did we sing in the bleak midwinter?" Well, we we do live in an area of the country where we don't have bleak midwinters the same that uh, that some some do. But this is the first Sunday of Advent, and many Christians celebrate four Sundays leading up to Christmas celebrating the Incarnation, and it's the way I'll be uh, choosing our hymns this Christmas season, and today is the first Sunday of Advent, the Sunday of hope, the Sunday of promise, and it reflects back to the waiting period of the Old Testament as they looked in darkness for the great light of the Messiah who would come. And I invite you to join in celebrating the anticipation of this season, uh, whether in your personal devotions or as a family to celebrate. Uh, last year, as a family, we began celebrating on Sunday evenings, uh, the various Sundays of Advent, lighting Advent candles, looking toward an anticipation, excitement about Christmas and the coming of Christ. And you don't have to follow a certain form, and we don't, we don't believe that, um, but that but there's any... Uh, necessity to a certain form in that way. But I invite you to embrace the waiting and understand the darkness into which Jesus came and the darkness that we still live in as we anticipate his second advent, his second coming or appearing. And that's what our message will be about today. So I invite you to join with me in that throughout uh, this month. Again, as Brent Brent mentioned, there are uh, gospel meditations for Christmas. It's a 31-day, pretty theologically packed devotional. Uh, If you'd like to use that, that's something we provided for you to use during this this month. And there are other resources um, as well. 2 Peter chapter 1 And we'll look, we'll read in just a moment, verses 16 through 21, and really park on verse 19. It stuck out to me over the past few weeks, and I think will be a blessing to us today. 2 Peter chapter 1, begin reading in verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. A message to 
today is entitled, Until the Day Dawns. Would you pray with me? Our God, we come to you already in submission to your word. We want to decide before we even understand and see that we will obey. We will listen. We will heed what you have to say. For whenever the word is opened, you are speaking through your inerrant, infallible scripture. Today, I pray that you would bring comfort, conviction, challenge, encouragement, and drawing to Christ for each of us as we look at your scriptures today. Would you give me clarity in my words, and may I speak what is in accord with your truth. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The history of the world has been a sequence of darkness anticipating the entrance of a great light. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Verse 3, And God said, Let there be light. And God is always the one who breaks the darkness, pierces it, with his light. After Adam and Eve sinned, again darkness settled upon God's world, this time a spiritual darkness that blinds the eyes of sinners from seeing the light of God's glory. Darkness in Scripture often represents sin and its consequences, the world itself and its system of opposing God's rule. But while mankind struggled to see God through the darkness throughout the the Old Testament human history, God did not struggle to see through the darkness to mankind. Psalm 139.2, the psalmist prays, Even the darkness is not dark to you, speaking to the Lord. The night is as bright as the day. God warned against those who failed to recognize the difference between the darkness of sin and the light of righteousness. Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. In the Old Testament, if we were to read it all the way through, we would see the people of Israel struggle in darkness. It took them through slavery in Egypt, through 40 years of wilderness wandering, failed monarchies, and through a generational cycle of rebellion and judgment. The one hope for light for both the people of Israel and for all the world was described and prophesied in the ninth chapter of Isaiah. We read it at Christmas time. The people who walk in darkness shall see a great light. And those who followed Yahweh throughout the Old Testament were looking forward to that great light to pierce through the darkness for both Jews and Gentiles. And it's this prophecy that we remember on this first Sunday of Advent, the Sunday of hope and promise. Waiting for the Messiah in the New Testament, the devout Simeon met Joseph, Mary, and baby Jesus at the temple on the day of Jesus' purification. And Simeon looked to heaven and he prayed, My eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. When Jesus came in his incarnation, the darkness had again been pierced by the light. 
Our study of John on Sunday mornings has sharpened our appreciation for Jesus Christ as the light. And Brent will continue preaching through John 8 and, and understanding that. John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And as Tim mentioned this morning, we sing these hymns of anticipation uh, with the benefit of having Christ's first coming already uh, known to us. But today, after Jesus' coming, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, but before his second coming, we still find ourselves in a time of darkness. Because although the light of the world has come in the person of Jesus Christ, John 3.19 says the men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. We still live in what Colossians 1 calls the domain of darkness. Before we're, before we're believers, we are in submission to this domain of darkness. In this domain, the God of this world, Satan, blinds the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, 4. You know about this darkness. This darkness you have experienced this week. From the outside, you've experienced temptation towards sin, toward worldly thinking. From our own hearts, we've experienced attraction toward what is wrong, grief over trials, discouragement, heartache. Physically, we've experienced pain and sickness, all the things that make us long for the light of the redemption and the curse of sin. And like the Old Testament saints who waited in darkness for the coming Messiah, we too look toward the dawning of the light of the Messiah's second coming. As we look back at our text now, 2 Peter 1 and verse 19, Peter is in 2 Peter referencing the transfiguration and looking toward that as historical proof of the second coming of the glory of Christ. In 2 Peter, there are evidently some false teachers in this time of the early church that Peter was warning against. That comes up throughout his epistle. They seem to have attacked the young believer's faith in the scriptures. In this paragraph, Peter is bolstering, supporting, encouraging believers in their faith in the scriptures, specifically the scriptures' prophecy about the future kingdom or coming of the, of, of the King Jesus Christ. Peter clarifies in verse 16, and we'll just look at verses 16 through 18 kind of as some context before we get into verse 19. Peter clarifies in verse 16 that the apostles' teaching was not oral tradition of legendary myths. Um, it's interesting. Mythical understanding of religion seems to actually be growing today. And a, a, a look at uh, legends of the past, mythology for a source of truth and understanding, even in the chaplaincy, as I talked to airmen uh, who were exploring various religions, a, a, really a fascination with uh, Norse mythology, uh, true paganism. It is really growing. It's fascinating to people to, to look for legends of the past, uh, gods and goddesses of, of folklore as a source for truth and meaning for them today. And Peter is saying that's not at all 
what the faith of the gospel is based upon. You're not inspired by the mythical stories of the past. Our faith is grounded in historical fact. It was verifiable truth claims based on eyewitness testimony. And Peter brings up the transfiguration. The time when Jesus was transfigured and Peter, James, and John saw him in his glory. We don't exactly know what that would have looked like, but it was quite amazing. And Peter remembers seeing this. Matthew 17, 5, it says he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. When they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Now, I don't know if Peter obeyed that admonition to not tell anyone until after the Son of Man had been raised from the dead, but at least when he's writing this, Jesus had already been risen from the dead. So he was obeying at this point. He's telling the story of this vision uh, after Jesus' resurrection. And Peter is saying in Second Peter now that just as he saw Jesus in his power and glory, we will one day see Jesus return in power and glory. The future coming of Jesus is also not a myth or a fable just to inspire us. It will be a literal historical reality just like the transfiguration that he saw. The apostles' teaching, teaching was anchored in real history. Verse 18 basically is saying we were with him. I was really there. So I know that the power and glory of Jesus is real, Peter says. I saw it. And now he uses that historical event to point to the glory of Jesus and the reality of his future return. If you're struggling in darkness today, let this passage encourage you that Jesus will literally return to this earth to fulfill and inaugurate visibly his kingdom that has already begun. The wrong may seem off so strong, but God is the ruler yet. We know the end of human history is a literal return of the King Jesus Christ. And this passage in Second Peter actually deepens our appreciation for the transfiguration in Matthew, for what it means. It is actually recorded in all three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it may have seemed like a, a strange event in Jesus' life to, to have recorded three times, but now in light of Second Peter, we see that the coming of the Son of Man um, and his glory in the transfiguration is used by Peter to challenge us to understand his future return and his glory as little historical fact. Now, I believe that the coming of the Son of Man, anticipated in Daniel and described in the Gospels, um, as Brent has preached, has, has the resurrected, occurred as the resurrected Christ received power and glory from the ancient of days. That's already occurred in a sense. Jesus is reigning now. We're not waiting or for Jesus to win back the world from Satan in some way. But as with many prophecies in the Bible, the fulfillment of Jesus' kingdom has begun, but has an aspect yet to be realized. Jesus is reigning now. He has come to the throne of God the Father and received power and glory. But one day he will come to earth to visibly set up this kingdom, to defeat sin and Satan, to ultimately defeat this domain of darkness in which we find ourselves. 
and once and for all to inaugurate the new heaven and the new earth. And all of this in verses 16 through 18 really is an introduction to our message today, and we can spend more time in any of those aspects. But we've seen that Peter defends this truth of Jesus coming because of his first-hand eyewitness experience of seeing Christ in his power and glory. And that makes his statement in verse 19 all the more powerful. Look at verse 19. And we, and I believe this we refers to all true believers here. And we have the prophetic word more fully an experience of seeing the power and glory of Jesus in an eyewitness way. But we now, after Jesus is, has been ascended into heaven, he's no longer physically here, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed than that. There is a source of authority and surety for the believer, specifically in the, our confidence in Jesus' coming kingdom. That is even greater than the transfiguration and the apostles' experience of seeing Christ. Our greater source of authority is the Scripture. What this verse calls the prophetic word. Now, most narrowly, if we were to interpret what that means, it could refer very narrowly to prophecies of the Old Testament about the coming of Jesus. We say that that is what the prophetic word means. But at the entirety of the Old Testament points to Christ, I believe this refers to all of the Old Testament. As incredible as Peter's experience of the transfiguration of the transfiguration was, the scriptures are even more certain as a source of assurance that Jesus will come again in power and glory. So there's nothing we have to say, well, if we'd have seen Jesus, we really might believe. We have even more certain, more confirmed the word. Of God. This is only referred to the Old Testament, but we won't get into this uh, fully, but I believe this entire passage, as well as 2 Timothy 3, speaking of the Scriptures, can be applied to both the Old and the New Testament for, for, one, for several reasons, one of which is that Peter, in 2 Peter 3.16, talks about New Testament writings as the Scriptures, just like the Old Testament. So it's perfectly acceptable for us to apply the words of our text, verses 16 to 21, to the entirety of the Bible. God's word is more certain than any experiences. Even Peter's experience of seeing Christ in his glory. I would have loved to have been at the Transfiguration. I felt like my, I felt like my faith would be stronger if I had seen something like that. Seeing Elijah and Moses come back and, and give their... Uh, and see their prophecies fulfilled in the person of Jesus. But we have something better in our hands. It is sure, it is certain, it is confirmed, specifically, according to this text, when it points our attention to the kingdom of God and the return of Jesus Christ. It reflects what Psalm 19.7 says, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Our confidence this morning is in the written Word of God. And it is as simple as trusting this most reliable source of authority and hope. Now, the rest of verse 19 applies this simple truth. It tells us what to do, why to do it, and for how long. Because God's Word is 
our more fully confirmed source of assurance. Verse 19 tells us, in light of that, pay attention to the scriptures. So our first point today, its application if you're taking notes, is pay attention to the scriptures. You do well, it says, to pay attention to this word of prophecy. You and I must pay attention to the scriptures and obey what it says. This admonition could even be seen, one commentator noted, as the pinnacle of Peter's entire letter up to this point. Leading up to this challenge. Pay attention to the scriptures. And before and after it, he's defending the reliability of the scriptures and warning against false teachers who would turn your attention to anything except the Bible. This phrase means to actively turn your mind, your interest, and your faith toward the Scripture. Verse 19 says, you do well when you pay attention. It is good and commendable for us to do this. So let me join with the Apostle Peter in telling you all today. It is good that you've gathered to pay attention to God's Word today. I commend you. I'm often astonished by the simplicity of certain verses in the Bible. For you. How do we endure the domain of darkness? How do we endure and wait in perseverance for the light of Jesus' return? There's some complexities to life within that span of the story. But the solution, according to the Bible, is actually very simple. Pay attention to the Scripture. Listen and heed it. I think we might overcomplicate the Christian life. In some ways, it is often as simple as placing our mind, opening my ears and my heart and my obedience to God's Word. If you're a new believer here today, or if you're a young person looking forward to a journey of the Christian life, this journey of following Christ that you've recently begun is one of trusting and heeding the book you hold in your hands. It's why we take time in our worship services to read an extended passage of Scripture. It's why our songs of worship are saturated by scriptural truth. It's why the majority of our time together is spent listening to it explained. It's why our children's ministry is focused on teaching and illustrating God's Word. Because of this simple verse, the Holy Spirit to the Apostle Peter says that when we pay attention to the Scripture, we do well. It is good to do. And it is, and it is based because of this next, ver- next part of the verse, is the light that it brings. Pay attention to the scriptures. Why? Or we can ask, ask, ask a little bit more specifically, what function does this prophetic word do? What does it accomplish? It is a light in this darkness. Verse 19, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. You, you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. This is the function of the Word. What is it doing right now in the world? It is bringing light to the darkness. And I love celebrating this idea of the light coming into darkness at Christmas time. Uh, each year we, we go uh, to Cross Point Church for their a Christmas Eve service, and they, and they do a true candlelight service there. They don't have windows in the auditorium, so they get really dark. And, and they light candles, and you have one candle, and it lights the next person's candle, and it begins to grow. And it's such a picture 
of the idea that what is the world, what is the word doing in the world today? As the word spreads, it is bringing light one person at a time. We haven't yet experienced the light of the morning sun. We'll get to it in a moment, but until the day dawns, that's Jesus' return. That's the morning. The morning sun will come. But we're still at, it's still in the nighttime, if you use the analogy. But we hold candles. Night lights. Lamps. That give light to this dark world in which we live. A lamp gives some light in the night and it is growing. If we're going to kind of understand this idea of the analogy used here. The lamp shining in a dark place now, until the day dawns in the future. The scriptures are the prophecies. The return of Christ is the fulfillment of those prophecies. The scriptural prophecies are like a nightlight or a candle, giving light to a dark room. The return of Christ will be the morning sun. It brings day to overcome. We haven't seen that morning sun yet. The new day has not dawned in the sense of Jesus' visible return. But we're not left waiting in darkness completely. We have the lamp of God's truth to give us light, to illumine our path, and focus our hope on the coming light of Jesus' return. The dark place of verse 19, as I've already alluded to, seems to be the world itself, this domain of darkness, and its system under satanic influence. And this is not the first time that God's truth is called a lamp to bring light to the darkness of this world. Psalm 119, 105, a very commonly memorized verse uh, that, that we would do well to rehearse. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Proverbs 6, 23, for the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light. This idea that scriptures are a light to our path has many applications, and we will list a few. But again, I'm coming back to, to the context of this. The primary one from the context of Second Peter is it enlightens us to the story of human history and to the end of human history. What kind of light does the Word give to the dark world? It tells us how history will end. The light that Jesus is coming back. It's the big story. The big picture helps us zoom out and see what is going on. It's the truth of Scripture that gives us this big picture. That although the domain of darkness seems powerful, although injustice and pain and suffering and trials continue today, the King will return in power and glory and make all things right. So it really broadens our understanding of this Christmas season to see more than just a nativity scene where children can act it out and have some fun. It really is bigger than that. It remembers the time of waiting before Jesus came. And it allows us to see the waiting that leads toward the light of Jesus' return. Until then, the scriptures light the darkness for us individually. Yes, corporately for the whole world, but individually. The darkness we experience can actually be overcome with the light of Scripture, and that's very practical. Once we've believed in Christ and been converted, we live by faith in the Scriptures as we experience darkness on a daily basis. 
This can be applied very practically to our reactions to life situations. Are we meditating on God's truth to react to the darkness in which we see? For example, in general, when we experience the darkness of sin, do we remember the scriptures tell us that sin has been defeated? When we struggle with temptation, do we remember that the scriptures tell us there's no temptation too great to bear with the Lord's strength? When we feel defeated by discouragement and despair, the scriptures tell us that if we cast all our care upon Him, we know He cares for us. When we experience devastating human illness, the scriptures tell us that Jesus is the great healer and the believer's life will never actually end. It's the truth of scripture that brings light on an individual basis when we experience the darkness. Living the Christian life can actually be as simple as taking God at His word. Believing the truth of that the scriptures are more sure than any experience. And before we move on from this, let's talk for a moment about the scriptures versus experiences. Peter says that the scriptures are more confirmed than his experience of seeing the transfiguration. Have you ever wished that in addition to the Bible, you could have an earth-shattering experience to deepen your faith? Maybe you've prayed, Lord, if you would just do this in a way that I could see visibly, I would, I would believe in you. And Jesus actually prayed for us before his crucifixion, those who had not seen, and the future, those who would believe in the future. And if we look at that combined with Peter's testimony here, we're not missing out on the assurance of Jesus' kingdom. The scriptures are not a secondary source of confidence and experiences being first. I don't think I'm the only one who's prayed something like, God, if you would do such and such, I would, my faith would increase. I'll, I'll praise you. And let me be clear, God can do anything, and often He does things visibly and bolsters our faith through those things. Absolutely, this is not a statement on what He can't do, but no one believer has a more confirmed faith than another just because they have a greater experience. We all hold the most sure prophecy, the Word of God. And I'm incredibly convicted myself when I look at this point. Because there's times in my life when I feel my faith is weak. I may think I need a greater experience of God's power, but I really need to pay more attention to God's Word. At the times when I feel I need a greater experience, a greater visible sign of what God is doing, that might be an indication that my attention to God's Word needs to be stronger. So how long do we have to keep up this faith in the Scriptures? How long? That's the end of verse 19. tells us how long we need to do that. It's very simply, keep looking to this lamp in the dark room until the day dawns. Until the morning. During the night, wait until the morning, until the day dawns. How long must we, must we pay attention to the word? Until the return of Jesus Christ. The prophetic word points us to the end of human history, the culmination of God's work in the world. And on that day, we won't be looking at the word with eyes of faith. We'll be looking literally at the word made flesh, Jesus Christ coming in His glory. The night light will be overwhelmed by the morning sun until the day dawns. The focus here isn't on the day, but on day as opposed to night. 
The time of this dawning is unknown. But the picture here is of the first light of sunrise breaking through the horizon, ending the darkest night. We actually experience that sometimes on a very spiritual level if you're praying for something through the night. Or maybe you, you aren't intentionally doing that, but the troubles of this, of this life keep you awake. And all you can think of is the difficulties you're experiencing, whether it's a physical illness or someone else's trials. And sometimes you actually get to see the light of the morning that brings you through a dark night. That's kind of how it feels for the whole experience of the church. Jesus' return will be like a light piercing the darkness. Echoing Psalm 30, verse 5, that says, Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. In the darkness, do not lose heart, for the darkness is temporary. But notice the other side of the coin with which Peter describes this light in the end of verse 19. Until the day dawns, and the morning star arises in your hearts. In the ancient world, Venus was usually the, the star we know now as a planet that was known as the morning star. The first star to appear, anticipating the sunrise. Peter compares the return of Christ to this morning star arising. Not just illuminating the entirety of human history, but in our hearts. Remember how I said you've experienced the darkness even this week? And that has not just been external. You've experienced darkness in your own heart this week. It's not just outside of us, it's in our hearts as well. And progressively through our journey towards Christ's likeness, the light of the Word is illumining our hearts And on the day of Christ's return, he will bring light to the dark world, yes, but he will also complete the work of the light, erasing the darkness in our hearts. When Jesus comes, our hearts will be enlightened by the morning star, Jesus Christ. And the light that enters our hearts, that when we are converted, reaches its fulfillment, its culmination, when Jesus comes back. This is what Paul meant when he said in Philippians that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Pay attention to God's word during this waiting period. Why? Because it is the lamp shining in this dark place. It's bringing light to one person at a time, and we actually have the privilege of spreading that light. Every time we share the gospel of of the good news of eternal life with someone else, we're able to give them, share that light with them so that one day they will be a follower of Jesus when that day dawns. For it will. And no matter how dark the night seems or how disconcerted we feel with the effects of the domain of darkness, our faith is in the unfailing Word. And it's promise that the world will end, human history will end with the return of Christ the King inaugurating an eternal kingdom. For the believer, the end of the world is a hope-filled event. And like the Old Testament saints who waited for the first advent of Christ, we wait for the second coming of our Lord. And if you don't know Jesus Christ as Savior today, that can be a fearful thing. That Jesus is coming back to make all things right because he will judge sin. He will judge your sin. But you can place your faith in the goodness and love of Jesus in his sacrifice. 
Be reconciled with your Creator today. Have a relationship with Him. And join with the church of all ages as we anticipate the coming of our Savior, our Redeemer. So if you don't know Christ as Savior and you have not had your sins forgiven through the Gospel, may this message today be a call for you to follow Christ, the returning King. For believers, will you trust His Word as we wait until the day comes? Let's pray. God, thank You so much for the Word of God that is without error, that does not fail, that is eternal, that will never pass away. And until we see Jesus visibly, our faith is found in the confirmed, sure, prophetic word of Scripture. Forgive us for neglecting it and looking for confirmation of our faith elsewhere. Father, this message this morning has been intentionally simple. And I pray that that simplicity would resonate in our spirits over the next few days and weeks. That commitments we made to open the Scriptures more this year that we have failed to do. That at times when we are challenged by Your Spirit and convicted, We've not paid attention to your scriptures like we should. And we've seen our faith grow weak. Would this passage invite us to do well, to pay attention to the scriptures? May you use this scripture to encourage those who have gathered today, for they have done what this passage has called them to do. Give their attention and time to the open word of God. For those who are suffering today, whether in our church or those that we know of, would you give them persevering faith to endure the darkness, to look forward to the dawning day to come. For trust in you comes through trusting your scripture. So would you bring to mind specific verses of scripture to those today who need encouragement? Father, I ask finally that if there's someone here today who doesn't know Jesus, that has not placed their faith and confidence only in Christ's death and resurrection for their salvation, that the preaching of Jesus Christ today, though it seems foolishness to many unbelieving, would be crystal clear to them because your Spirit opens their eyes to the light of the gospel. Pray that they would repent of their sin today and follow you. May we as a church, though we will experience great trouble and tribulation, never lose heart and gather week after week after week. Yes, it may seem mundane. Yes, it may seem repetitive. But it is for the simple reason of reminding ourselves of the truth of Scripture. And rallying together around our joint hope in the light to come. I pray this in the name of Jesus, the morning star. Amen.